<coughs> Jonah, and we're not doing many verses tonight, but uh, last time we looked <coughs> at uh, chapter 1 through verse 16, and uh, let me just ask you before we begin, how many of you believe that Jonah was really swallowed by a big fish on a whale? Okay, most of you, okay. Let me just say that there are those, even in the Christian community, who don't, <clears throat> who believe that uh, Jonah is not a historical fact, but it's more like a parable that uh, Jesus taught in New Testament times. And those are some good, solid Christian people. Um, let me just say this first. Either way, there are lessons and applications that we need to make to our lives from this book. And uh, instead of getting distracted about that debate over historicity, um, it's important that we learn the important lessons. Now, I'm not saying historicity is not important. And personally, I believe it's a historical account and factual. But I don't want us to lose uh, sight. And a lot of times people get arguing about all kinds of things and miss the greater value of the text. Um, the story of Jonah is really the story of you and me. We're really center stage in this story. And so there's so much we can learn from it. Now, having said that, let's move on to the issue of whether or not Jonah really was swallowed by a great fish. Um, <clears throat> before we do that, let me remind you what's happened in the text uh, pr previously. Uh, God gave uh, Jonah in chapter 1 a threefold command to arise, to go to Nineveh, that great city, and to cry out, or in other words, to preach, to tell them the truth, that they needed to repent. <clears throat> but we saw that Jonah had a problem with that assignment from God. <clears throat> he didn't like it. And he didn't like it because... The Ninevites were the enemies of his people. And so he didn't want them to be saved. He didn't want them to repent. He wanted God to wipe them out. So Jonah, much like Adam and Eve before him, tried to hide from God. He turned and ran the other way and took a ship going in the opposite direction. So God caused a great storm to come upon that ship, threatening to sink it. And uh, we saw that uh, he was a Galilean prophet the only other Galilean prophet in Scripture besides Jesus. Jonah admitted to the crew that he was fleeing from God, and uh, it was because of him that this storm was there. When he was asked uh, what they should do, he said, throw him overboard. We said that was pretty pathetic, <clears throat> because what he could have said was, turn the ship around, take me back, and the storm will abate. But he didn't, because he'd rather die than do what God asked him to do. The, report, the sailors we saw strove very hard to go back to land. They didn't want to do that. They tried very hard to take the ship back to land, but the storm got even greater. So they finally threw him overboard <clears throat> after praying that God would not hold this against him. Immediately the storm stopped, and the result was that the sailors worshipped the one true God. Now in today's passage, we pick up <clears throat> with what the sailors and Jonah himself, I'm sure, believed was the inevitable, and that is when they tossed him overboard in the midst of this incredible storm and these huge waves and howling winds, that he'd be dead very shortly. He would drown. There's no way to survive in that. They didn't have life jackets in those days. And uh, we don't know if he was a swimmer at all anyway, but he wouldn't have lasted very long. So we pick up in chapter 1, verse 17. I'm only going to read three verses. Chapter 17, the first verse of chapter 2, and the last verse of chapter 2. And the reason I'm only looking at those three verses is because I think it's important to put that this story in proper perspective. And it gives us, I think, even greater confidence in the Scripture. So uh, you can stand, I guess. We usually do for the Word of God. It's a short passage, but it'll wake you up anyway, if nothing else. 
Verse 17 of chapter 1, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon, out upon the dry land. You may be seated. There are many points we could make, but... <clears throat> Let me ask you this first. Some of you are fishermen, I know, because I fished with you. Have you ever heard about uh, fishermen describing their catch? Yeah we, we, yeah, yeah, we call them fish stories for a reason, right? Because usually they say, it was that big? And they're talking about between their thumb and finger, not their hands. You know, they, they, they tend to exaggerate. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons uh, perhaps people have problems believing that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. They just consider it's another fish story. In this case, it's a, a whale of a tail, which is the name of the, the message. But if that's one of your reasons, then your logic is very, very faulty for a number of reasons. First of all, your experience is too limited to be counted as universal measurement. Even if every fisherman you've ever known exaggerates, that does not mean that every fisherman in the world exaggerates. Some people actually are accurate. And so you can't say that that's a reason by itself. But the biggest thing, I would, let me ask you this. This is the question I think that is the simplest. Could God appoint a fish to swallow Jonah? Can God appoint a fish today to swallow someone and have that person survive for several days and then spit them up on dry land? Anybody here doubts that? By the word of God's mouth, what happened in the beginning of time? He created the heavens and the earth. And the oceans, the fish swim in. He created the fish. He created everything that is by the, weird, by the mere words of his mouth. Okay? So is it a problem, theologically, to say that God could have a fish swallow a human being and that person survive? Obviously not so what's the problem why do so many people doubt this story why do they have to consider it a parable why do many just think it's foolishness I believe it's because it's outside of our normal experiences in the way we see things there was a report yesterday in Australia of a great white shark <clears throat> attacking someone and biting them in two fifth death in Australia this year by great whites killing people that's what we're used to. You know, you get attacked by a fish, you die. A couple of gator attacks in uh, Florida. People lose arms, legs, they die. That's the kind of thing that's in our normal experience. But if there, if there is a God <clears throat> at all, then that's also a poor reason to reject the fact that we wouldn't believe in this because it's outside of our experience level. And if there's not an all-powerful God, then we have much greater problems than the accuracy of the book of Jonah. I gave you that blue form, <clears throat> and uh, hopefully, those of you who've never seen it before, I don't know if you ever, did anybody solve it? Those of you who've never seen it before, a couple of you did, okay. Okay, the problem is, <clears throat> most people say, okay, I've got these nine dots, I can't lift my pen off the paper once I start. But the problem with most people is they limit their thinking to inside of those nine dots. They don't think 
outside the box, if you will. But if you do not limit yourself, and the instructions say, without removing your pencil from the paper, connect all the dots using four straight lines. So if you take one straight line up here, one across here, one across here, and one across here, that's it. But you had to come outside the box. We are so conditioned that we put limits upon ourselves that aren't there. Look at the instructions. Does it say anything about staying within those nine dots? It doesn't. It's a subconscious thing that we do. Now, the same problem is true when we think about God. Most people try to put God in a box that's comfortable. We try to tell God, how about that newspaper article this morning, the London paper? We're against this rain. Just stop it now. That's what we want. We want to tell God what we don't like, what we do like, what you should do, and when you should do it, and how you should do it. We try to put God in a box, and God will not be placed in a box. He'll not be put in a framework. He'll push our comfort zone every time. It's the only way you grow. But we say, well, why did this have to happen to me? If there's a God, he wouldn't allow this to happen. Why did this have to happen? Why did this person have to suffer? What's, why do these children have to go through this? And we have all these reasons why just things just can't be and shouldn't be and why God is unfair and, and on and on and on. But God does not conform to our ideas. We are to conform to his. Now, I'm saying that I believe this is historically accurate. And most of the criticisms that come today are because we live among godless people in a contaminated culture of people who want to call the shots and think that they are gods. Our politicians want us to worship them as gods and think they got all the answers. They make all these ridiculous promises. And I've only been around 62 years, but I've never seen one come through yet. Probably Ronald Reagan was the closest to keeping his promises of any of them in my experience. But none of them can do the things they say they can do. They can try, but they can't do them. And so they assume that God is not sovereign over nature and history and that he cannot intervene supernaturally in the created order. But you've got to remember what is clear in Scripture and what Jesus said. Nothing is impossible with God absolutely nothing except for God to violate his own character and being. Now, having said that, I realize that just because God could do something, that does not mean that God did do something in every case. God could do, can do all things, but he doesn't always do them. But I would ask you as the next item to consider as to the historicity is what the early church fathers how they treated this book. They all treated it as a historical narrative. They all treated it as historical fact. Probably one of the fam most famous of the early uh, church fathers was the Jewish historian Josephus. He has a four-volume set. I should have brought it in, but it's called The Antiquity of the Jews. And uh, he and the other church fathers treated this book as divinely inspired and accurate in what it reports. They reported it as history and as prophecy. And I say... I think the most important reason to believe in the historicity of Jonah, though, is the testimony of Jesus Christ himself. If you look over at Matthew 12, 
you'll see that Jesus refers to a parallel, I mean to Jonah, starting at verse 38. Before we read that, though, let me just draw some important parallels between Jesus and Jonah. Besides the fact that their names both begin with J, they're both five letters long, they're both Galileans, they're both prophets. Both of them engaged in ministries directed by God. Both went to hostile people, the enemy, to allies of the devil. In our New Testament reading, Jesus referred to the generation he was sent to in verse 39 as an evil and adulterous generation. Both had essentially the same message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Jonah was told to go and to preach, to repent, because otherwise God was going to judge them. Both spent three nights and three days down under in the depths in tombs of different sorts. Jesus a regular tomb, Jonah in the fish's belly. Both came out of their respective tombs alive. Both were signs to the people of their day. Jonah, first of all, to the sailors and then to the Ninevites. Jesus, first of all, to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So there are lots of parallels for these two Galilean prophets. So it's at the point where the Pharisees are asking Jesus to give them a sign. And we read what we read starting in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, is Jesus referring to Jonah as a great story, a children's fairy tale, or as a fact? He said, you've already received an incredible sign in your history. It's the sign of Jonah. And that's the only one you're going to get. Just as he was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They were a wicked generation. Now, as we saw last week, the sailors knew that to throw Jonah overboard was to be certainly his death. That's why they rode so hard to try to get back to land. And they threw him overboard only as a last resort. Jonah himself expected to die. And in other words, as far as they were concerned, Jonah was as good as dead when they picked him up and tossed him. And Jonah's first reactions, which we'll see that next time when we look at his prayer, uh, would confirm that that's what he thought too. But for God to accomplish his purposes for Jonah, for him to be assigned to the Ninevites, but also to be assigned for the people in Jesus' day that we just read in Matthew 12, and also to be assigned for us today a couple thousand years later, God had to change the expectations of the sailors and Jonah himself. God does that all the time because ours are so puny and so wrong. So I think Jesus' testimony is very, very telling and very, very key. But now, there's another aspect to this possibility. Not only are all things possible with God, not only would this be simple for God to do supernaturally, but it's not outside the realm of possibility, period without supernatural intervention. In other words, it is possible the way 
the earth has been set up and the way the animals and the sea are set up and the way man is set up. Notice all three of these talk about, these verses we mentioned, all talk about a fish or a great fish. Now, <clears throat> that fish didn't have to be a whale, but it could have been a whale. How many of you have ever been to the Smithsonian? Anybody? A few of you? You, ever, you walk under the blue sperm whale? Massive. Okay, that whale is, as I recall, see, I wrote it down, what was it, that whale? Uh, he was somewhere between 70 and 80 feet. I didn't write it down. But let me just help you understand how long that is. If you take from that cross to the back doors of the church, that's 72 feet. So that'd be a 70-foot whale. The sperm whales uh, run 70 to 80 feet, and, uh, and blue whales can reach 100 feet and 100 tons as far as that goes. Now, chances are this was probably a sperm whale. They were the kind that were in the waters that Jonah was in, and they only run from 50 to 80 feet. So if we set a 60 or 65 footer, it wouldn't quite be to the back door, okay? Um, <clears throat> that's if we're being conservative. Sir John Bland Sutton, former president of the Royal College of Surgeons, said that a sperm whale of that size, 60 or so feet, would have a mouth 20 feet in length. So that would be from the cross to about where I'm standing. That's the length of the mouth. The mouth would be 15 feet in height, which is two feet higher than that top of the uh, arch here. So two feet above that would be the height of the mouth. And, the, and it would only be a little bit narrower than here. Probably be, it's a, this, that's a ten and a half foot opening. It would only be nine feet, so it would be a foot and a half narrower than that. And he said, and I quote, <coughs> The sperm whale swims about with its lower jaw hanging down and its huge gullet gaping like some submarine cavern. The sperm whales subsist for the most part on octopus, the bodies of which are many are larger than man's, and whole octopus have been found whole in the stomach of sperm whales. So something that swallows octopus alive could easily swallow a man alive. I mean, that mouse gaping down and that hole is that big, I mean, I'm not, I mean, just picture me in light of that hole. Not a big deal. I'd just be a snack. Wouldn't even be the main course. <clears throat> but rather than just talk about that is it scientifically possible, yeah, it is, let's talk about two historical accounts as well. I'll give you a reference later from a Princeton journal. Both accounts come from the early days of, or the days when whaling was big industry, back in the days before uh, that was all banned and those sorts of things. And now let me be clear, while I'm vouching for the historicity of Scripture, I'm not vouching for the historicity and the accuracy of these reports. I'm just telling you what's in the Princeton Journal, and I'll quote where these things were found. The first account happened in 1771 and was recorded by Sir John Sutton. It was reported in the October 14, 1771 Boston Postboy, a whaling vessel out of Edgartown, uh, United States, had one of her boats bitten in two by a whale. That, which took Marshall Jenkins in her mouth and went down with him. So he swallowed him and went down. Now returning to the surface, the whale ejected Jenkins onto the wreckage, much bruised but not seriously injured otherwise. And he makes a side note that ejecting or spitting up uh, is a regular method by which sperm whales rid themselves of awkward or indigestible uh, objects. So when we read, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry ground, that's what they do. 
to get rid of objectionable or, and I'm sure he'd vomit me up because I wouldn't taste good, so, you know, or indigestible objects. So that makes verse 10 very easy to believe because that actually had happened and is witnessed by a whole ship's crew. The second account involves a man <coughs> named James Bartley who worked in the English whaling uh, company of the star on the whaling ship, I mean the Star of the East. And this account was documented by Sir Francis Fox and was sub subsequently investigated and verified by two French scientists, including one who was quoted as one of the most careful and painstaking in Europe, M. de Paville. And that's French, so I said it wrong, I'm sure. But in February 1891, so that's 120 years later after the first incident, uh, a sperm whale was spotted and two boats were launched to spear the fish. The first boat speared the fish, which then lashed at the second boat with its uh, tail, and it broke it in two. And one sailor was drowned, and James Bartley came up missing. The whale was eventually killed later that evening and tied alongside of the whaling ship, which they did. They didn't, couldn't hoist him aboard, so they tied him alongside. And the next day and, and to the evening, the, the crew removed the uh, blub blubber from the fish. Remember, you know, whale blubber was used for oil and for all kinds of purposes. And then the morning of the third day, they hoisted the stomach up onto the deck, and they were startled by something moving around inside the stomach, which turned out to be the missing sailor alive. Later, Bartley said he probably could have lived inside the whale until he starved to death. He said, and, I, and, uh, remember, and as he remembered, and I quote, this is from those guys who investigated it, they said, Bartley affirms that he would probably have lived inside his house of flesh until he starved, for he lost his senses through fright and not from lack of air. He remembers the sensation of being thrown out of the boat into the sea. He was then encompassed by a great darkness, and he felt he was slipping along a smooth passage of some sort that seemed to move and carry him forward. The sensation lasted but a short time, and then he realized he had more room. He felt about him, and his hands came into contact with the yielding, slimy substance that seemed to shrink from his touch. It finally dawned upon him he'd been swallowed by the whale. He could easily breathe, but the heat was terrible. It was not a scorching, stifling nature, but it seemed to open his pores of his skin and draw out his vitality. His skin where was exposed to the action of the gastric juice, his face, neck, and hands were bleached to a deadly whiteness and took on the appearance of parchment and they never recovered their natural appearance. Though otherwise, his health did not seem affected by his terrible experience. In other words, the whale's gastric juices, although they were unpleasant, ex extremely unpleasant, were not deadly to a human being in and by themselves. Now notice the interesting uh, time element here in this account, uh, this Bartley account. First of all, consider that Jesus was what? Three days and three nights in the tomb. But remember, that's the way Jewish people reckon time. The way Jewish people do time is in, in those days was any part of a day is a day. And we know from Scripture from Mark 16, 12, uh, that Jesus arose Sunday morning. We know from Mark 4, 15 that Jesus died about 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday. So Friday at 3 p.m., all day Saturday, and first thing Sunday morning, he rose from the grave. So that's recorded as three days because that's the way Jewish people count it. Part of one day is a day. Now, if, to our way of thinking, we're talking less than two 48-hour days because if you count that up, it's about 39 to 40 hours that he was probably in the grave. 
very much like the sailor who was swallowed. He was swallowed. The, the whale was killed and lashed beside the ship. The next day, all day long, they tried to harvest it. And then the, the following morning, they yielded the, the uh, stomach up on, the, on the, the deck and they found the sailor. So the three days and three nights of Jesus could be very much like this sailor and it certainly could be like Jonah. So again, while I'm not vouching for the exact historicity of those two whaling accounts, I believe they demonstrate what is recorded in history hundreds of years ago in one case and uh, over 100 years ago in the second case, that God could use even natural forces to accomplish the account of Jonah. He didn't really have to do anything miraculous to bring that about, except he could have, of course, if he'd have wanted. If you want to read more detailed accounts of that, it's in the Princeton Theological Review from October 1927. Princeton Theological Review, October 1927. So what's that mean for you and me? I mean, how do we apply this to our lives? What's a lesson we can take away? Besides the obvious lesson we've talked about last time, you can never run away from God. And if you think you're going to thwart his purposes, you are really a fool with a capital F. You turn around and run the other way, he'll stop you, as he did with Jonah with this incredible storm. We talked about this morning in the sermon that when you have besetting sins you don't deal with, he'll put you in situations that you have to face them over and over and over again until he gets you to wake up and realize you need him. You need to confess your sin. You need to repent and ask him to change you and to save you from that besetting sin, even if you're a Christian. There are other lessons as well. Verses 2 through 9 are the prayer, which we'll look at next time, uh, that show from the, the belly of the fish when Jonah cried out to God and uh, God then delivered him. C.S. Lewis said, and I kind of like this, I've never been a fan of dentists, don't tell my wife, uh, she knows it. Uh, she's a dental hygienist, that's why I've got to be careful when I talk about den dentistry. C.S. Lewis said, God is like a dentist or a surgeon. The end or outcome of the surgery is good, but there is pain in the process. The story of Jonah indicates that if you're a wayward follower of Christ, then you're in for some painful experiences so that God can turn you back and put you on the path you need to be. Not too long ago, I reread Pilgrim's Progress. And there's a slew of despond, and there's all the, the, you know, the doubting castle, and there's all those different things. You get off of the path, and you're in big trouble. You stay to the path. You follow God's word. You follow his commands. Life isn't smooth, but it's a whole lot better than when you try to go your own way. There's nothing but increasing trouble when you go away from God. Because God will do whatever it takes to chasten his rebellious children. I don't know about you, but I see a lot of kids today that if parents went around, I'd take them up and snatch them, and I'd straighten them out in very short order. And it's not because I don't love them. It's because I can't stand to see what those parents are doing to their children. You'd be in public places, restaurants and stuff, and it's obvious who runs the house. It is not the parents. It is the kids. God is, our Heavenly Father is a parent who really cares about our hearts. And he'll do whatever it takes to straighten us out so that we can live the lives he wants us to live. And, of course, in Jonah's case, he had a mission for Jonah, and he wasn't going to let him out of it. Some of you have had those experiences where God wanted you to do something, and you refused to do it. And eventually you had to because he didn't let you out of it. 
When you buck God, you have the losing hand every time. If you take his chastisement seriously, you can know that he will forgive you, he'll welcome you back, and he'll give you a second chance. That's what he did with Jonah. Once he got his attention, vomited him on the land, he said, now go do what I told you to do. He didn't let him out of it, and Jonah did it. He didn't like it. We see a temper tantrum at the end of the book, but he finally at least did what he was told to do. Or perhaps you're like Jonah. You're not totally rebellious at... Uh, he just somewhere along the line lost his uh, loving feeling for God or something. You know that song? I lost that love and feeling. Well, somehow we sometimes do that. Sometimes you get kind of stale. You get kind of dry. Your quiet times, they call the dark night of the soul in some of the ancient writings, where you just go through a dry time in your life. Your quiet times aren't what they ought to be. They're not as fresh as they ought to be. That is no reason to stop. There's no reason. I mean, the first thing you need to do is say, is there sin in my life that's causing this? Is there something that I'm doing that's causing this to be? And, if, and even if, there, if, if, you're not, if you don't think there is, then you need to cry out to God and say, God, refresh me. You know, Jesus said, if you, if you believe in me, you'll have like springs of living water within you. Those can be recaptured. Sometimes it's just sticking with the disciplines and asking God to make your heart soft again and to love him. It's to be honest with him. It's not just to go through the motions of having quiet times, not just to do the things you're supposed to do and go through that long term. It's to say, God, we've got a problem here. I'm not enjoying this. I'm not feeling like I'm closer to you. If you're doing this for a reason, okay, I'm fine with that, but how about changing that? How about softening my heart? How about making me love you more? I don't know about you, but that's one of my prayer requests every day, that he would make me love him more, that I would fall more in love with him, that he would make me more sensitive to other people. I know some of you find that hard to believe, but you should have met me 20 years ago. I mean, I, God has changed me. But I pray those kinds of prayers, specific prayers like that daily because he's got a lot of work to do yet. Even if you've totally blown it. Jesus said, you're supposed to forgive 70 times 7. When the disciples thought they were so great when they were forgiven 7 times. And God forgives every time you come to him in true repentance and true humility. Look at Peter. I mean, he denied Jesus, bragged and bragged, and he said, you'll deny me three times this very night. He, he denied him, and yet he used him incredibly. He was one of the pillars of the early church. God is into the redemption business. And that redemption includes re redeeming that first love that we sometimes lost, like the Laodiceans. I wish that you were hot or cold because you're lukewarm. I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Jonah had to be swallowed by a fish. The Laodiceans, he just, God's just going to vomit out of his mouth, not a fish's mouth. I mean, think about Scripture and all the parallels and all the different verses. God wants you to grow in your relationship with him. College and career class, we were talking this morning. You see, I've been married 40 years. And we know what the other person's thinking most of the time. And I, and I told them, yesterday evening, I just made a comment. I just said one line, totally out of There was no context except what we'd experienced in the past week. I made one line, and she just cracked up. 
because she put it all together and knew what I was meaning by it and where it was going. That wouldn't have happened 30 years ago. She looked at me like I was crazy. But as you stay married in an intimate relationship, you should grow closer and closer over those years. You should love each other more. You should know each other better, and it ought to be sweeter and sweeter. And you should be able to do those kinds of things, and the other person understands why, because you've been in that kind of fellowship. And that's what God, remember marriage, Ephesians 5, supposed to be a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. People are supposed to see your marriages and know that's how sweet it can be to be in the church of Jesus Christ and have Christ as your, as your, as your, as your uh, groom. And if that's what you want, God will gladly give you another chance every time. And you should be encouraged by that. You should feel hope, no matter what your situation is, no matter how you've blown it. You can't be any more obstinate than Jonah. And yet he forgave him and used him powerfully. And at the end of the book, he has to kick him in the rear again. That's how we all are. We have short memories. But God is a tremendous and forgiving God. So I hope that encourages you. Let me close with uh, a prayer from uh, Martin Luther some at, the, at the Diet of Worms. It's, uh, I'm just going to skip and just use parts of it, but it really seems to fit well. So let's pray together. O oh God, almighty God everlasting, how dreadful is the world. Behold how its mouth opens to swallow me up. And how small is my faith in, in thee. Oh, the weakness of the flesh and the power of Satan. If I am to depend upon any strength of this world, all is over. Oh God, oh God, oh thou my God, help me against all the wisdom of this world. Oh Lord, help me. Oh faithful and unchangeable God, I lean not upon man. My God, come, I pray thee. I am ready to lay down my life for thy truth, for thy cause is holy. Yes, I have thine own word to assure me of it. My soul belongs to thee and will abide with thee forever. Lord, we admit, like Martin Luther, we often think the world is opening its mouth to swallow us. But even if it does, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. So we thank you that you are in charge, that you are sovereign, that you providentially rule, that you do work all things together for your glory and ultimately for our good as well. Thank you for Jonah. Thank you for the lessons that he learned that are so applicable to us. And give us a week where we find ourselves wanting to love you more and begging you to do that. And we ask this in Jesus' name.